Hey folks, welcome back to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream 110 edition. We are broadcasting from separate rooms, though we know this is not likely to contain this particular pathogen, but here we are. Um, Heather, can you hear me? I can. Excellent. I can hear you. So uh, I think we're ready to engage, you know, questions and maybe we'll come up with, I don't know, some answers. We get a lot of great questions this week. I think uh, there is some some pent up questioning. Mm, That can happen. From the missing weeks. But first, the Discord question for the week is, I am going to be providing testimony at the state Senate sometime within the next three weeks in defense of women's rights to sex segregated sports. Do you have any advice? Yeah, I think way too much, way more than we have time for here, right? Um, I think the fundamental question is, sports are segregated for a reason that everybody knew until yesterday, to use Douglas Murray's formulation, right? Men and women are on average different. If women and men compete together, women lose. There are sports in which men and women co-ed games are are functional, um, but an all-male team against an all-female team, the male team wins. That's what Title IX is about in the U.S., right? What has happened is a conflation of sex with gender. Gender, how it is that you you feel you should present, what it is, you know, which of the sort of traditional or stereotypical roles uh, that you are drawn to, whether or not it's building things and doing math or um, easing people's problems by spending long hours talking with them, um, has more to do with gender than with sex. Gender follows from sex, but it's not the same thing. So no one ever thought that there should be gender segregated sports. That doesn't mean anything. And it doesn't make any sense in part because uh, apparently you are the gender you say you are. So sex is biological and real and immutable in mammals. And we have a long history of reasons, um, both legal and evolutionary um, that are established uh, that by which we know that sex sex segregated sports is the way that women end up being allowed to compete on an even even playing field once you start allowing people to declare themselves female and confuse gender with sex you obliterate the the protections that women have and you therefore have destroyed women's sports yeah, I would just add there's something so odd about the idea that anybody expects us to explain this and that the implication is that if we can explain it clearly enough, then we will win. But the fact that we have failed to explain it clearly is the reason that they are desegregating sports in this crazy way. And the answer is no. Everybody understands this, and those who claim not to understand this are pretending. So where does their indifference to the rights of women come from? Yeah, there it is. Good. That's a good line. All right. First question from today from darkhorsesubmissions.com. Hello from Canada. I'm sure you're aware of the insanity we are going through. I feel like Canada is one of the test territories for the global plan. Am I just paranoid? Am I losing it? Do you still think there's a way out of this? Thank you so much from the you guys are punk rock guy, which you are. Yeah, there... There are ways out of this. We are going to have to stand up 
we're going to have to rise up against these officials who, whatever the explanation, are completely botching the response to the pandemic, and they are putting us in a great deal of danger, and not just us, but our children. And <clears throat> yeah, Canada is ahead of the U.S. Australia appears to be ahead of the U.S. in terms of the tyrannical nonsense. And, you know, the, the U.S. has not yet played its role in becoming part of the resistance, but really it's all tied up in there. I think the the fundamental difference between this and uh, prior outbreaks of tyranny is that because this one's global in some sense, the resistance movement has to be as well. And uh, anyway, don't give up hope. Yes, we are, <clears throat> we are going to find ourselves in battle and it's one that we have to win. Yeah, that's right. That's right. An animal rescue in Kabul has reached 70% of a fundraising goal to fly 300 animals to safety in Vancouver. The effort is virtually stalled in the last few days. Social media is the only communication channel between the rescue and its supporters. Any advice on applying game theory, strategy, knowledge of human behavior, or other means to break out of the echo chamber and jumpstart this time-sensitive mission? Boy, I wish I knew more of what this is about. I mean, I yeah, I agree. This, this struck me as so surprising and so out of out of any context that I'm familiar with that I have a hard time knowing how to respond on this one. Yeah, I mean, if if the animals that are being rescued, you know, it really depends. If they're dogs, then I would say you want to play that up because uh, people love their dogs. If they're, I don't know, sand fleas, then probably it won't work. And if they're armadillo, I, I don't know. I, um, <laughs> I don't think. I mean, I I may be I may be, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> behind in my biogeography, but I don't think there are any armadillos in Afghanistan. Yeah, I, I'm not actually sure if there are or there aren't. My real point was without knowing what kind of animals are being rescued and from what, it's hard to say how one might jumpstart the effort. Uh, but presumably there's some reason that people are going through the effort of rescuing animals and moving them half a world away. And yeah, yeah I, I wish I had anything to give you on, in terms of game theory, but really the question is one of human psychology, it sounds like. And uh, probably figuring out what the motivation is and how to tap into it so that people are captivated by the story. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, total coincidence, but while we were trying to answer that question, Fairfax and Tesla were getting into it on the floor here. And I don't know if you could hear the growling and the uh, and the the cat noises, but if you could, that was not the animals not being. Oh boy, not being. Rescued from Afghanistan, but uh, our two cats going at it. <laughs> so, it was the uh, ongoing case of spy versus spy that we <laughs> have in our environment. Yes, exactly. Uh, okay. So sorry, sorry for a really inadequate answer on that question, which I knew we would give because I just I don't know enough about what to say there. Um, here we have two quotes from C.S. Lewis. Uh, with a link to the full essay, um, two different links, two different quotations from C.S. Lewis. For if, ow, now he's going after my toes, stop that. Um, okay. For if crime and disease are to be regarded as the same thing, it follows that any state of mind which our masters choose to call disease can be treated as crime and compulsorily cured. 
It will be vain to plead that states of mind which displease government need not always involve moral turpitude and do not therefore always deserve forfeiture of liberty. That's one. Great. And second, again from C.S. Lewis, this very kindness stings with intolerable insult. To be cured against one's will and cured of states which we may not regard as disease is to be put on a level of those who have not yet reached the age of reason or those who never will. To be classed with infants, imbeciles, and domestic animals. They certainly are infantilizing us. And or we are allowing our infantilization. And... Um, I would say uh, they are infantilizing us they are gaslighting us they are intimidating us and that different things work on different people mm -hmm. but that at some level they will do whatever it takes to make sure that we are denied all choice that we are left with one option and that we are unpersoned should we find that unacceptable? And I think yeah. the thing is, anybody who does that is obviously the definition of the wrong side of history. We know that these people are bad, however they became that way, because of their insistence on robbing us of all, all options, all agency, um, and, and all reason. And, you know, how much do you need to know about uh, people like that before you realize, actually, I'm not listening to them anymore. I'm with the people who are making sense. How do we explain? I, I don't think this is a non sequitur, although it may sound like it. And you and I have not discussed this at all. Actually, it hasn't come up between us yet. How do you explain the number of just blatant inaccuracies um, from SCOTUS in <laughs> the discussion of the the possible mandates, you know, Supreme Court of the United States, specifically, I think Kagan and Sotomayor um, had some just whoppers in there. And I, and I didn't watch very much. And I didn't see that many transcripts either. But my sense is, I may be wrong, um, that they believe what they're saying. Yeah. Oh, boy, they, they, they really believe what they're saying. And wow, like, what, what then? What do we what do we do? Well, I think, <clears throat> I mean, I really think it comes down to this. You know, you called them whoppers. <laughs> we might call them whoppers. Right? What now? From, from WAPO, uh, <laughs> from the Washington Post, you know. And I think, I think the thing is, look, you, let, let's, let's be kind to our Supreme Court justices. These people live in a very visible position at the head of officialdom. And those in officialdom, for reasons that we would have to guess at, probably can't afford to entertain things that they are being told are fringe and misinformation or disinformation, dangerous. And so... I think the point is, if you're spooked enough because your position does not allow you to in, engage these things, you reject them every time they show up on a screen and you basically are constantly reasserting that you are not uh, from the crazy tribe, nor do you listen to them. And if that's your bent because your job demands it, then what we're talking about is like a foreign language. And so in some sense, this was like a 
an exploration of the party line mind, right? People who have never trafficked in doubt about the public health authorities and are therefore effectively reverse engineering what must be behind their proclamations. But I guess, so this, I've already been surprised and stunned and beyond disappointed by a lot of people these last two years uh, who can question stories when they come in a domain that they have at least passing familiarity with. And we have long noticed and talked about on Dark Horse, but for decades have noticed how much more easily people would put faith in a proclamation if it comes with numbers or if it comes with an imprimatur of a scientific authority um, because most people are so badly educated in math and in science in school that they have long since said that I black box, that I have to choose the people I listen to. Um, and if if they think that the current government is one that is uh, you know, legitimately working on their behalf, then they will look to the authorities the government has appointed. That's devastating, and it's doing tremendous damage across uh, across media. Let's let's say it is precisely the job of the Supreme Court of the United States to have doubt on every subject. I, f I feel like you know I don't I am I am no legal scholar in any way, but I feel like that is actually a reasonable claim to being one of their top priorities. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think you're on the right track here. Everybody is being bullied away from their professional responsibilities, right? We are firing doctors and nurses who, as doctors and nurses, are not compelled that these vaccines are safe and effective enough to take, right? We are intimidating doctors who talk about alternative treatments that they have tried and have gotten value from. So the point is everybody, you and I are supposed to not do what you and I do, right? We're trained to look into complex systems and to understand them even in light of imperfect evidence. That's what evolutionary biologists do. We, we never have randomized controlled trials. We're always dealing with data sets that are confusing and imperfect and deeply incomplete. And so, you know, we're not supposed to be doing that now. Why? Because this is that kind of emergency. Well, what I don't remember is the discussion that says, where is the threshold, right? We all agree that there are circumstances so dangerous that your normal instincts should be put on hold, right? We all agree with that, right? If the ship is sinking, then that is the priority. What we have not discussed is, okay, at least the initial variants of SARS-CoV-2 were worse than the flu. How much worse than the flu does something have to be before you turn society upside down before you allow small businesses to be destroyed and all of that wealth transferred to their gigantic competitors. How bad does something have to be before we suspend normal? And the answer is we pass stuff around all the time in a normal year. People are passing flu to each other. Grandmothers are dying because somebody gets on a plane who shouldn't, right? This happens all the time. Now, maybe the point is we should have a very different approach to all infectious disease and it should affect travel, but we've never had that conversation, 
that we were just simply told that this pathogen was above some threshold where we needed to turn the world upside down and effectively <laughs> to do it indefinitely until when? We don't know. They've never told us. Who are we? We're Apparently that's not uh, ours to know. And so it, you've got Supreme Court justices not behaving like Supreme Court justices. You've got members of Congress not behaving like members of Congress. You've got presidents not behaving like presidents. You've got professors not behaving like professors. You've got philosophers not doing philosophy, right? Everybody is failing in their professional responsibilities because something is forcing them out of it. And those of us who have attempted to continue to do what we do have found ourselves in this weird netherworld where we are portrayed as the enemies of reason and decency and health. And, you know, okay, th that's why, right? You're, you're in a world where the doctors who are doing the doctoring are now heretics and the professors who are continuing to try to do the job of sorting stuff out are, you know, dangerous conspiracy theorists or whatever. And the answer is, look, either you're smart enough to, to see through that and to say, wait a second, maybe those are the doctors I should be listening to, or you're not. And I guess I'm not terribly surprised that the Supreme Court is um, staffed by people who have not figured their way out of the matrix because they live at the center of it. Yeah, I think you're right. It doesn't... Um... It doesn't breed confidence, though, does it? Oh, boy. No, it, it ought to terrify us. Yeah. But, you know, it's also, I think many people are sort of groping for, you know, they're asking, well, what will end this, right? How is this going to end if this is where we are? And the answer is, it, it's not going to be easy, but so many things come down to the same calculation that a smoker ought to to have, right? The fact that what you face to quit smoking is very, very difficult is no argument whatsoever to not quit smoking. It's an argument to do it now because it's only going to get worse. And yeah. So right. that's where we are. The point is, what's going to end this? Well, it's going to be us finally facing it together and saying no, right? That's what's going to end it. When would be a good time to do that? Uh, i trying to remember what the aphorism is. Something like uh, the best time to do it would have been two years ago. The second best time is now, right? Yeah. It's that. Yeah, that's right. This is uh, in keeping. Next question. The situation is deteriorating fast in Canada. Is it futile to think we can still live our lives without being vaccinated? What will it take to break the fear spell? Thank you both very much. We missed you. Well, I, I, at one level, the fact that the vaccines aren't doing any of the things they were supposed to do at some point should get noticed by someone, but it doesn't seem to be getting noticed. No, but it's worse. It's worse, right? Well, the, the evidence is actually mounting that these vaccines make you more likely to contract the disease. The idea that that has not caused our governments to say, wait a second, hold on with the vaccines something has changed. Let us figure out what it is. We'll be back to you in a minute, right? That's what a rational government would do. The fact that it was like, nope, hey, the advice we gave you just so happens to still be the right advice. In fact, even though, in fact, it's obviously upside down, right. that tells you, whoa, I can't afford to listen to that person. If that person tells me to ingest something, I ought to wonder if it's a poison, right? Yeah. So That's right. That's right. I, you know, can you continue to live unvaccinated? Look, 
I'm not advising you to do anything, but I would say your government has betrayed you and it has failed to do what it promised it could do. If you think that that failure is on people who have not complied, then look into Gibraltar, right? The fact is their one remedy does not work. So in light of that, can you afford to take their advice and just grin and bear it? How many times will they force you to be boosted, right? They are exposing you to danger each time they do that. So in some sense, as appalling as what is going to happen to you if you resist is, how appalling is what's going to happen to you if you don't resist? You don't know. It could be 10 years from now that you find out the answer to that question. So I would just- on your feet, then die on your knees. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. You want, you want to repeat that? I think it broke up with Skype. Oh, better. It's better to live on your feet than to die on your knees. This from the old man in the whorehouse in Catch-22, an excerpt that we read from some weeks ago. Yep. It's, it's the right answer. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I don't think I owe anybody an apology, but I feel like offering one. Uh, I'm sorry it's that stark, right? I'm sorry that that's where we are in history and that that means that you have to make some awful choice, but that's the nature of history. Yeah. All right. You ready? Yep. So when I'm looking at the questions, I can't see you and I can never see the screen that other people are seeing. So, But, but you remember what I look like. Well, now I do. Okay. While cloth masks might not be as effective as N95s, could they still help train the immune system by allowing a manageable amount of virus through? Not unlike playing in dirt as a child versus being totally sanitized. Um, yeah, I've wondered this, um, but it, of course it might also concentrate stuff on the other side of the mask. Like if you are sick, you might get sicker. Yeah, Although or- N95 would do that even more so. Well- Might the, not be porous. The concern- is so first of all the masks seem to be better if you put them on the sick rather than try to protect the well um, but if you use something like a cloth mask and mind you i will say again cloth masks are something i got wrong at the beginning of this right i think the whole story of you and me heather and what we've been doing is that we started out with a model that was crude because our information was bad and our model got better as our information got better and as we puzzled through it and that's why people tuned in masks is something i got wrong at the beginning and then uh came to understand that the evidence didn't support it and there's even a an argument that cloth masks could be more harmful than beneficial um on the basis that a sick person with a cloth mask might find that the droplets which would ordinarily fall to the floor are broken up by effectively the mesh of the cloth and they find themselves much lighter and they make it farther into the world. So um, <clears throat> yes, your hypothesis that there could be a mechanism whereby cloth masks expose you to just enough, that might well be right or it might well make things worse. And the answer is we don't have evidence that says anything other than cloth masks are inadequate to prevent people from contracting the disease, which is not an answer to your question, but I think the answer is a lot of things are possible. It would be great to know in, <coughs> in detail, but we don't know. Yeah. Canadian here, should I get out? If so, how is the United States treatment of autistic children? Perhaps asking the crowd, is Florida suitable for um, kids on the autism spectrum? 
I don't know anything about how Florida is for kids yeah, with I don't, autism. I also don't know anything about how the U.S. is compared to other countries. I, um, I've had friends uh, who have done clinical work with autistic kids. And I think um, like with so much, I mean, probably every system ever, um, but certainly in the United States, in healthcare, uh, the care that you will get is dependent entirely on circumstance. And uh, in part, that circumstance is just luck. In part, it's money and access and who you know. And in part, it's luck. Uh, and um, the fact that we seem to know very little about um, what we should be doing for people across all of these medical domains means that um, what's considered the best may not be the best anyway. So it may you know just add that to your model as well. But I have no knowledge about Florida compared to the other states. Um, I will say that there seems to be some very, some, some, some good treatment for some people on the autism spectrum um, in the United States, but again, highly patchy. Yes. And I will just say that having nothing to do with the autism, the very fact of our for-profit healthcare system, um, I, I have been persuaded uh, by Dr. Rolligator, uh, among others, that single payer actually opens up the prospect of medical authoritarianism in a way that a for-profit uh, system built around choice does not. Um, that said, a single payer system, at least probably, I don't know whether it covers autism. I presume that it does. And if it does, that's a big step down that you would face in coming to uh, to Florida. Yeah, that's right. Uh, sorry, I'm just looking through questions now. We got a bunch more came in. Um, oh, I don't know the answer to this, but since you recently said it, can you point me to some evidence that vaccinated people are more likely than unvaccinated to get Omicron? So far, I'm following Dr. Malone's feed. Love you both. Um, that is a good question. I've seen several things. One led to a very confusing paper, which I'm still uh, slogging my way through. So I don't have... I don't have the the goods to deliver, um, but I think a I should say the evidence on this is changing rapidly, and it seems to be headed in that direction. But b even the evidence we have is a little bit hard to parse. So I'm working on getting something to point to, but I don't have it. Okay, uh, not exactly a similar type of question, but um, okay. Next, we'll get to the, this other one that just made me laugh. Um, potential ovarian damage from the vaccine isn't studied or discussed like myocarditis. Is this true? Um, Wait, could you repeat it? I didn't quite catch it. I just hit yes, and I don't have any memory of how to get back to what, having what, said yes. What kind of damage uh, ovarian, was it? Ovarian damage ovarian as damage. opposed to myocarditis. I will say, and again, I can't share my screen here, but I have this paper that just came out um, by Edelman et al., in obstetrics and gynecology is the name of the journal called association between menstrual cycle length and coronavirus disease 2019 vaccination a u.s cohort um and what they find um is some effect but not very much now there, there's a lot of caveats um i don't it's i have not i've not i've skimmed the paper and read parts of it but i haven't fully um fully internalized it. I'm trying to remember the people they were looking at for this uh, were people who are using an app to track their cycle. So women who were using in this natural cycles app um, 
to voluntarily, prospectively track physiologic data related to their menstrual cycles for purposes of non-hormonal pregnancy prevention or planning. So this is um, that that's the cohort that we're looking looking at here in this paper, um, which is going to be a fairly highly educated, um, probably fairly wealthy cohort of people who are um, using an app um, to either for contraception or for um, or for pregnancy um, to track hormonal stuff. Um, but the the main conclusion of the paper is, and I quote, overall, the vaccinated cohort experienced a less than one day unadjusted increase in the length of their menstrual cycle during their first vaccine cycle compared with their three pre-vaccination cycles. So um, longer, but not by much. That said, what I think is hiding here, I think the devil in the details here is that um, most people didn't have any effect at all and some people had pretty strong effects. And this is going to be the place where we, you know, we keep on getting lied to with statistics throughout this thing. And one of the easiest ways to lie to people is to use a mean when you really should be talking about, um, you know, okay, it's it's making up numbers here. 10% of people who had rather dramatic effects and 90% of people had no effect. 10% is a huge number if it, if it was that, right? And so just talking about, uh, and, and they say somewhere in this paper, and I don't have it highlighted, so I can't find it, um, that, that that less than that one day difference in menstrual cycles among the vaccinated versus among the vaccinated compared to their pre-vaccinated state compared to among the unvaccinated compared to the same time period uh, is very small, but it's probably so small because so many people had no effect at all. And that many of the people who had an effect had a larger effect. So this is beginning to be consistent with a lot of what we're hearing that, you know, maybe it's about the batches. Maybe it's about some people being particularly susceptible to the lipid nanoparticles. Who knows? Could be about um, where in the cycle, actually. Well, there is actually some evidence here that if you've got the two shots both within the same cycle, then you tended to have a two-day delay. Um, so there, there is that too. But um, that to the extent that these vaccines are not good for you, um, that doesn't mean that maybe even the majority of people who get them don't do just fine. You know, just like any of the toxins that we are exposed to, some people will be just fine. And that will be due to, you know, vagaries of um, genetics and circumstance and, and everything else. Could be um, could be also uh, downstream of the question of the aspiration of the shot itself, something yeah. John Campbell explored at length. So you could imagine that if it doesn't hit a vein for most people and it does hit a vein for a small number of people and in women for whom it went into a vein, then it's much more likely to find its way to the ovaries in concentrations that matter, something something like that, right? That's a, yep. I'm not saying that is what it is. I'm saying it's a hypothesis about what it might be. Um, I will also say it's not the only line of evidence here. If I'm recalling correctly, the initial concern about uh, ovaries came from a study in rodents, a Japanese study in which there was a concentration in ovaries of, I think it was rats. Um, yeah. So in any case, the point is you've got multiple lines of evidence saying you've got an interaction between you know A and B, and that's a reason for extreme caution. Um, right. So anyway, that's where we are. Exactly. Uh, okay. Uh, Dr. HH, blink thrice if you need help. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing just fine. <laughs> uh, we're, we're doing just fine. We're, we're 
we're putting on a show here. I've talked to friends about lab leak and vaccines. All this, so this is that was the first part of this question. The rest of it is an actual question, I think. Um, I've talked to friends about lab leak and vaccines. All were convinced that I was worshiping Alec Jones. I haven't lost friends yet, but it feels lonely. Do you see any signs of hope? Yeah, this this bit about um, Alex Jones wasn't as wrong as they told us he was is um, concerning to a lot of people. Yeah, um, that's always a question, and it is also true that you know the magic trick is visible from certain places. The idea that to oppose vaccine mandates, to oppose any vaccine to have any doubt about the efficacy, safety, the wisdom of any vaccine renders you an anti-vaxxer, no matter how vaccinated you may be, is a tell, right? That is the monster letting you in on a secret, which is that the term anti-vaxxer doesn't mean a goddamn thing. It's a threat, right? It's a stigma that will be uh, appended to you irrespective of your beliefs and behavior and that you should be very, very frightened and you should run from that stigma. You should do what they tell you so they don't wield it at you. And the answer is don't listen to them, right? If they're going to define anti-vaxxer so everybody's an anti-vaxxer, well then fine, right? Then it's a meaningless term. They so, did the same thing with racist, right? right? It's the same trick same thing it's the same and you know we we are the living proof of this right we were the racists of evergreen in spite of the fact that we are the opposite of racists so if you saw that and you stuck with the story long enough to figure out that hey people are screaming about you being racist but there doesn't seem anything racist about you and in fact there are an awful lot of students of a wide diversity of uh, descriptions who seem to think that that's a preposterous claim right if you saw that then you realize oh Racist isn't a description of something. It's a threat, right? It's a weapon. It's a weapon. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. anyway, I mean, and, I can't remember that when we- lonely though. Say it again? That doesn't mean it doesn't feel lonely. The person asking the question said, um, yeah, just increasingly it, it, it's lonely. Well, yeah. it is and it isn't. If you, I mean, it, depending upon the circumstances of your life, it may be that you don't have- anyone to find. But our experience has been that there are some people who have broken the wrong way in each of these circumstances, and they've been perfectly horrible. And then there have been other people who've shown up and who have shined. And I would say in no case has the replacement of people who have been awful with people who have been good been a downgrade in the number of friends, the quality of friends, the decency of those friends. In every case, it's been an upgrade. And so the question really is, are you remaining attached to people who had such weakness of character that they fell for these tricks? And are you overlooking the possibility that there might be new people who would be much higher quality and much more rewarding to hang out with. And I, you know, the, the weird caveat of that, what, what Heather and I have seen is that our friend group is really eclectic. It cuts across all kinds of lines, right? That has been very much to the good. It is a much more interesting, dynamic friend group. And yeah, it contains people who have 
you know, radically other ways of viewing the world, but that's all to the good as far as we're concerned. So who, who are you overlooking is the question. Who that does have ears to hear uh, are you failing to see? And what would happen if you, uh, if you try to team up with them? Well, I don't, I don't disagree with any of that, but I don't think it, um, I doubt that it is perfectly responsive to the person asking the question because um, it will be obvious to most people watching us um, that m many of the costs that we endure for being public with our, um, with what we do. Uh, but one of the benefits is hidden in the answer that you just gave, which is that people find us. Huh. And um, if you're, if you're not public, if, you know, if, if your job, whether or not you intended it to be or not, uh, isn't to public declare publicly declare where it is that you stand on issues, then how is it that people would find you? Like, ah. you know, how is it the person asking the question will will find these people who I know exist, who, but whom you are alluding to? Um, but in this in this way, we are. This is the this is one of the the, the ways that it's easier for us yep. than for us people. Yeah. Although <clears throat> now that I get the question better, I do think that there is uh, an answer in that, right? You and I also find that with people, and you know, most people don't know who we are, um, so we have a lot of those conversations too. And mm -hmm. if you are bold about confessing your doubts and your concerns, and you just, you know, you you take the risk of letting people know that you're not on board with the conventional narrative, and that actually you've come to understand some different things, I believe you will be absolutely shocked by the percentage of your fellow citizens who are also possessing of doubts, afraid to talk and feeling a bit lonely and, you know, go with it. Talk, yeah. talk to people, let them know, you know what, I don't think this advice makes any sense and here's why and uh, see what you get back. I'll, I'd, be, I'd be shocked if you didn't find a lot of kindred spirits. Yeah. Um, let's see. I don't know where this one is coming from, but I'm just going to read it. Rates of domestic abuse are often hard to measure, but could be as high as 55 to 73% for lesbian couples, according to Wikipedia. If true, what selective pressures cause it to be so high? I would be shocked if that was right. I mean, why would I know? But that seems really unlikely. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. This question has the potential to be sort of an amazing one to spend time with, but <clears throat> I'm reminded of occasionally I would get a question in class. It'd be like, I just, it just doesn't, it's just not worth exploring this premise until we establish, or it's exploring this question until we establish that the premise has any basis in reality. Um, because I think for you and for me, and this is, this is an interesting part about us being in different rooms. Um, we didn't have any, we, we had no shared communication about this before I read that aloud to you. But I too had the reaction of like, oh, really? I would have thought, you know, I, I would have thought quite not, right? So um, rather than do the thing that they, the sort of non-evolutionary biologist, biologists accuse us of doing, of like adaptively arm-waving explanations into existence with a premise that both of us think isn't true, I think we should pass on this one. Yeah. But uh, if there's evidence, yeah. we'd look at it. Yeah. 
Um, Ezekiel Emanuel and two bioethicists have written op-eds advocating permanent digital vaccine passports and treating all respiratory viruses with lockdowns, plus vastly expanding public health technocracy. Please comment. I haven't read them, but I know, I know, I knew this had happened. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to vouch for this summary although this is someone who's written questions before and, and has been accurate. Um, I do, I did see the little tidbit about advocating permanent digital vaccine passports. I did not see the bit about treating all respiratory viruses, was it, with um, yeah, lockdowns. Um, oh, for fuck's sake. Well, okay. A, this goes back to what we were talking about in the main podcast. Yeah. They have one tool that is legitimate at their disposal. And that is to convince us that the benefit of this exceeds the cost, which I think would be very hard to do. For one thing, it suggests a an obscene and cartoonish understanding of our control over these things, right? Mm. Vaccine passports, you really think you're gonna be able to generate a vaccine for all of these things and that it's gonna be worth doing the rate at which these things move through the population and the amount of time it takes to actually get a safe vaccine to market and the amount of time that it takes to even know that that vaccine is safe. I mean, long term. Maybe you're right about what what ultimately is part of this, but um, as just a little bit that I read about this, uh, the, the digital vaccine passports thing was responsive to, no, paper vaccine passports are not sufficient. Paper vaccine cards that you have to show in some cities to get any services at all already will not be sufficient because they're too easily forged. We need something basically where, you know, the panopticon is here and you you can be seen and you will be seen and you there is no escape. Yes, um, I was uh, actually a, a Dark Horse episode will be out hopefully sooner rather than later. I was talking to a very fascinating gentleman from Australia who was talking about um, passports that in fact read your facial data and compare it to your GPS coordinates, both of which your phone is capable of assessing to determine whether or not you are locked down the way you are supposed to be. Right, right. It's an absolutely chilling combination of technologies, and I think the answer is: Look, we actually. I think I'm in a great position to speak to this because before there was COVID, I was troubled by the casual way that we deal with all of the viruses that we are moving around the globe with airplanes and other kinds of transportation. Right, we're paying a huge cost for all of the stuff that we are circulating that gets everywhere, right? And it's very hard as an individual to protect yourself from this without becoming a hermit. So what can we do about that? Well, I think we can do an awful lot to track these things. What I would do if I was, if it was mine to, to say, I would set up an institute to figure out how these things work, right? The purpose of this institute would not be to adjust anybody's behavior, but just to simply take each path in the pathogen that shows up and figure out where it came from, how it spread, so that we could become expert about this rather than having to guess, right? Then we could do things that are incredibly useful, right? Like the amount of disease we have reduced by getting people to wash their hands in between, you know, when they leave the bathroom effectively, 
Yep. That is tremendously effective. The amount of health that we have preserved by getting uh, sewage segregated from drinking water, right? There are a lot of things. The bang for the buck that you get for very simple measures can be absolutely huge. So knowing more would be very useful. But I got to tell you, I am not excited about the idea that these people who have proved that they can ignore the most glaring evidence are suddenly going to be even in even greater charge of our lives on the basis that they are the bureaucrats who've been handed that responsibility. No freaking way. These people are not up to the challenge. No. I don't know if they're, you know, not smart enough or just too corrupt. You know, it's one or both of those things, but damn it. Can't you see they don't know how to control disease? I'm shocked, frankly. In this case, that Emmanuel is in that um, is in that cohort, but there he is. Um, it's also true that a virus to you is not the same thing as a virus to me, as you know, as we are experiencing. You know, presumably, you and I have both been exposed to the same thing, and we have responded differently to it. And uh, we all have experiences like this in our life, where. Um, Someone gets really sick from some pathogen and it could only be the same pathogen and their friend, their lover, their mother, whatever it is, um, has a totally different presentation. And it's not just ones of, of scale, but also of quality, right? Viruses affect different people different ways, depending on other true things about their, about their life, including how healthy they are and whether or not they're vitamin D deficient and whether or not they're obese and whether or not they have other underlying conditions and, you know, and how active they are and all of these things. And those, those public health interventions that you mentioned that the U S and the rest of the weird world basically got on board um, in I don't know, starting with the Industrial Revolution-ish through the middle of the 20th century, clean drinking water. Um, you know, we grew up in one of the most polluted cities on earth in LA in the 70s, but they got their act together. You know, clean air to breathe, um, got the lead out of the gasoline. We have clean drinking water. <clears throat> We're putting more and more crap on our food. Those of us who can afford to try to you know, try to eat only the food without all the crap on it. But, uh, you know, we have, and, and then sewage, sewage treatment, right? Clean drinking water and not run, having to run into your own efflux. All of these things help you be healthier so that you can resist the viruses that are around and will always be around anyway. These are the things we should be um, maximizing here and everywhere for public health. This, this is what should be happening, for instance, in Africa, not a focus on vaccines. All right. I'm going to add one thing to this, right? And you and I have been on this for many, many months. I don't believe that any public health authority who has not pointed out the hazard of vitamin D deficiency, its role in disease vulnerability, and recommended a course of action in which individuals can become more robust in the face of disease. I don't believe that any authority that hasn't done that is in a position to tell you anything about your health relative to infectious disease. And yes, that goes for you, Dr. Fauci. Mm -hmm. The fact is, this is the lowest hanging fruit on the tree. And everybody who's looked into it knows that. And for you not to recommend it is for you to expose people to needless disease. So I don't want to hear about vaccine passports, and I don't want to hear about digitalization and facial recognition and, you know, lockdowns for colds and flu until people deal with all of the easy, safe, 
low interference measures that we haven't done yet, right? Those things come first before we talk about anything exotic. Yep. Regarding political polarization, what do you think of a party based strictly on reflecting best polling data available? Reps would have only to do good polling and vote accordingly. Um, <clears throat> there is a more sophisticated version of what you're talking about. It is called liquid democracy. And there is a strong argument to be made. I will tell you, I've looked at liquid democracy and the devil is in the details with respect to structuring it. But you could have a system in which effectively a party ran through an app in which the constituents were able to either voice their opinion on a given issue, which would then go into the uh, calculation of the person who had been elected to the office, or more importantly, they could proxy their vote to someone that they believed understood the matter better. So that is to say, you might not know anything about climate, but you might think James Hansen does know a lot about climate. And so your basic feeling is I'm in no position to disagree with James Hansen and I trust him. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to proxy my vote in the liquid democracy party to James Hansen. And at any moment that I decide James Hansen isn't the right guy anymore, I can take it back and I can use my vote directly or I can give it to somebody else. I can proxy it to another authority, right? So there is a way that this could work and it could be uh, quite good. And I will say there's also an opportunity. What you don't, I think, don't want is in a liquid democracy scenario, you don't want the... Um, individual who is elected to the office to be <coughs> effectively a robot, right? Where they are just simply enacting the will of the app, right? As it manifests the collective belief of the members of the party. You want them to play a role too, right? And so it would effectively restructure inside of the democracy. We have various, uh, you know, roles and responsibilities. There are ways to do it. But again, I wouldn't advocate for any old liquid democracy version. The devil is in the details. You've got to get them right. Otherwise, it will have its own externalities and downsides that are hard to foresee. So something in the neighborhood is cool, but be very, very cautious about the instantiation that you embrace. Yeah. John McWhorter feels that some people cannot be reasoned with since their opinions are articles of faith. What line do you draw for engaging what he calls the elect and other difficult people? <laughs> I think it depends. It depends on what kind of faith we're talking about. Well, but also just before you begin, I don't, you don't, there's no line, right? I mean, both, both you and I, and this is part of what our success in the classroom was, uh, engage individuals as they come, right? So right. It, there's not going to be a popular, there will be exceptions to all, exceptions to all such rules. I will say... I've dealt with lots of people who would describe themselves as people of faith. And I almost never run into anybody who really will just uh, refuse to engage a reasoned argument, right? Mm -hmm. You may not persuade them of your position ultimately, but people in general are interested in having those discussions. And we've been given a sort of cartoon of, of what faith looks like 
and uh, it isn't right. And it's, it's a destructive cartoon. That said, you do often run into people who have a perverse incentive who have reverse engineered the rationale for it. And so this is the distinction I would draw between a rationale, a true explanation, and a rationalization where you make something rational that isn't. Mm -hmm. um, and in any case, what I would say is if you run into somebody who really is just simply impervious to reason, it's probably because the incentives make it impossible for them to contemplate an alternative, right? It may be that the social incentives in their environment force them to embrace the idea that there is a continuum of sexes for example, right? That per person may think, well, if I engage an argument that says actually really there are just two sexes, you know, who's going to talk to me? None of my friends are going to talk to me again. So that's a perverse incentive and it will result in something that looks like faith. But really what it is, is a calculation of incentives. Have you heard of minds.com? Like Twitter, Getter, Gab, but open source code, transparent algorithm. This seems like the way to go. Um, <clears throat> I have. I like open source as a underlying technology. I worry about the ownership of all of these things that even somebody who starts a platform and says, look, here are the rules that make for a really good platform, right? We're gonna protect free exchange of ideas, et cetera, et cetera. Somebody can set that thing in motion everybody can sign up for it and then it can go public. And then suddenly it's exposed to the same perverse incentives as everything else. So mm -hmm. we need to think about how not only to generate a better platform, but to stabilize a better platform. And we're going to have to, because we've seen what is, you know, Twitter has become uh, a schoolyard bully and yeah. That's going to happen to every platform that doesn't figure out how to rule that out from the get-go. Ask Zach where we're at time-wise. Hey, Zach. Um, it's a little bit hard to say for various reasons. I have no idea. Uh, Zach says it's a complex question that does, time may not be what we think it is. You ask him what he's on. Yeah. Are you doing drugs, Zach? <laughs> We're at 55 minutes. Okay. We have time for a few more here. Um, women are born with all of our eggs. Would ovarian toxins be a primary risk to our fertility? Should infertility be seen through a public health lens? So this um, turns out, I think, uh, that, the, that, they weren't, that we aren't born with all of our eggs, um, but that, that that was a slightly oversimplification. That was a slight oversimplification of what is actually true. Uh, some new information that came out, what, in the aughts maybe? I'm trying to think of when, when um, but that it's certainly true that, um, that we're born with a lot of our eggs and that the rate of production um, slows down dramatically um, with, with time. Um, and that when you're, you know, when you, every, every week is, that would be terrible. Every month as you ovulate, um, you're not producing a new, you're, you're not, you're not releasing a newly produced egg. You're, you may be releasing an egg that was actually formed when you were still in utero inside your mother. Um, but yes, um, because, uh, we have all or most of all of our eggs on board um, at any point in our 
pre prepubescent or adult lives, that does mean that toxins that did go into the ovaries uh, could be potentially uh, damaging and have fertility effects that we might not know for a very long. Yeah, they're, they're less likely to be transient than, for instance, if there were toxins that were targeting sperm, which are produced basically, you know, for for the instance that they are needed. So I did not get the question at first. I think I now get it. And I think a key question is what is the interaction of SARS-CoV-2 with the placenta, right? There's some things like, for example, with- There's no placenta in the question, but- um, No, but the, the question yeah. is about uh, when you are in utero, could you be affected by a vaccine that goes to ovaries? If your ovaries are forming and your eggs are being produced, right? While you are in utero. I don't, I don't think that's in the question, but I think it's fascinating. So, you know, oh. women, women pregnant with girl babies uh, may be at greater risk, put, putting their children at greater risk, actually, than women pregnant with boy babies. Yeah, which we didn't, we, we wouldn't know for a very long time. But my point is that hinges on whether or not things cross the placenta. Now, given that spike protein seems to shred the blood brain barrier, seems likely to me, you know, the blood brain barrier and the placenta are not fundamentally different concepts, right? The, yeah. uh, the placenta. Different. I mean, they're, I don't even think that they're from the same, I can't even figure out what embryonic uh, tissue they're from developmentally. But right. it's, it's not going to be the same phylogenetically. Right. I'm, uh, I'm but, not saying it is. I'm saying that the, the job that these things do is to insulate these uh, two systems um, with a semi-permeable barrier. And that semi-permeable barrier in the case of placenta is spectacularly capable. In fact, it keeps um, an HIV-infected mother from infecting her offspring. Offspring are typically, when they are infected, infected during birth where there's blood. Um, so anyway, it's an amazing structure. And what the spike protein does to it is a question. And therefore, whether or not it's going to have implications for a fetus is a a, a, a real an important an important issue. Indeed. As a conservative libertarian, it's not that there can't ever be a government solution to the types of problems you mentioned. For us, it comes down to scope, primacy, oversight, and whether better alternatives exist outside of it. Yeah, I would want to <clears throat> drill down on each of those terms and right. figure out exactly what is meant. And then the thing I would point out to a dyed-in-the-wool libertarian, and of course we have libertarian leanings but are not libertarians, the thing I would point out to a dyed-in-the-wool libertarian is that the externality question is a profound one and it is one that is not dealt with at the level of the individual, right? Yeah. So the question is we must have something to address it and strict libertarianism does not seem to offer that tool so what is that tool, right? Mm -hmm. um, anyway, it's, it's a worthy discussion for another time. Indeed. Uh, have you heard about using a nicotine lozenge for smokers for COVID? Um, I've heard nothing about this. No. Okay. Uh, have you seen the new study suggesting that Omicron jumped from mice, indicating possible animal reservoir hazards? Any thoughts? Uh, yeah, it's on my list of things to go back to. It sounds like a remarkable uh, fact, if it is true. If it is true, it is probably downstream of the likely 
serial passage experiments that probably took place in Wuhan that probably used humanized mice and therefore would have made mice a um, hospitable host, just as it may have made ferrets and minks a hospitable host. These are all animals that would likely have been used in such a context. And so anyway, if it escaped into mice, we have to ask why that jump. I mean, that's not a small jump from people, right? It is a small jump if the laboratory involved uh, peopleized mice, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, maybe one day we'll find out about all this stuff. Um, yeah, you know, maybe. yeah, we probably ought to, now that Christian Anderson is back on Twitter, we probably ask, ought to ask him for an update on the cover up, see how it's going. Um, oh, was he off Twitter for a while? Oh yeah, he was off Twitter. He was, uh, he was driven off Twitter by people who kept uh, saying factual stuff to him that he couldn't respond to because of the Twitter uh, did send Christian off Twitter. Uh, no. The truth, the irritation of people with facts sent Anderson off Twitter. Yeah, Anderson was reportedly hiding under the desk in his office uh, until people forgot the role that he had played in covering up the lab leak. And uh, apparently he has decided that enough people have forgotten that he is now he's now back. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we should find him a new desk. Mm. Okay, two more questions. I mean, there's a few more. I'm not getting, we're not going to get to all of them, uh, but we got through most of them. Let's see. Uh, is there a reliable way to measure the durability of one's natural immunity? Is there a reliable way to measure the durability? Well, here, here's the problem. So there's two ways that you can interpret that question, which is, um, you know, do you have immunity at the moment from having been exposed to COVID past? Um, and there are various questions about whether or not, you know, circulating antibodies and such are a, a good measure. Um, but the other, the more, the potentially more interesting question uh, is, is there any way to know, you know, a month out from having had COVID, whether or not your immunity will, um, you know, persist forever as it seems often to do or, if, um, or not. And I don't, I don't think we have an answer to that at all. I, I don't think we have a perfect answer, but I think we have a, a kind of way in. First of all, I would say okay. antibodies are certain to be a terrible measure, right? That this yeah. is, we have been sold the idea that antibodies are the end all and be all of immunity by people who just so happen to be in the business of selling crappy vaccines that generate a temporary boost in antibodies. So anyway, um, that's a sales pitch and we should get over it. The best immunity comes from T cells, which have something antibody-like on their surface, but you can't just go in and measure the T cells in the same way that you can measure the circulating antibodies. So antibodies- Do we have a good measure? No, that's the problem, is that actually it's a tricky question. So um, we can measure antibodies easily, and so we choose to measure. It's a, it's a tyranny of metrics thing, right? Um, Anti antibodies are easy to measure, but they also, as a function of a healthy response to a pathogen with which you have been infected, will drop precipitously after that infection, right? Because if your immunity has uh, been housed over in T-cell land where it is best, <clears throat> then the point is those antibodies, you know, there's some optimal level and it's not a high number. So you expect antibody levels to drop. Um, so anyway, the point is, what you want to know is, is your durable immunity 
there and how permanent is it, which is going to be a function of a couple things. One, how good is the memory on the immune system side? And two, how rapidly changing is the pathogen so that the memory is actually useful, right? So the evolution of a pathogen can cause a you know robust immune response to be irrelevant because by the time you get your next encounter, it doesn't look the same. So what you want to know <clears throat> is of, across a population, we should probably assume something like a normal distribution, or maybe it's a power law that would describe how long people's immunity lasts, right? And so if the immunity is not going to be very long lasting for a given pathogen and its interaction with the immune system, then you would expect some people to get readily reinfected, right? People who were on the low end of that distribution, they should be very vulnerable to a second infection. Mm -hmm. To the extent that you have few documented cases of anybody getting a second uh, infection, then that suggests it's likely to be very long lived because that tail of the distribution is all, all also very well protected. So that's not a perfect proxy, but that's how I would look at it complex systems wise. Well, but I mean, there's also the question of how distantly related is the virus that you are now exposed to from the virus that you have immunity to? So if, you know, if, if Omicron is so different from Delta uh, that, uh, you know, the anecdotal reports that we hear of people who were sick last summer and then again sick a month ago are true, um, that, you know, that is consistent with actually you won't get Delta again, but, right. um, but Omicron m might, you know, put forth a new form um, that you could be susceptible to because it's different enough from the one that you now have natural immunity to. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that's a different way of saying the same thing about the rate of evolution of the pathogen. The, the basic point is immunity depends on similarity between right. the thing that you became immune to and the thing that you encounter and a rate of change that is sufficient will outstrip that at some point. Precisely. Yeah. Okay, uh, one last question. Why didn't birds just evolve back into dinosaurs? They did, and they always are, all moments of every day. I mean, they never stop being dinosaurs is the thing, right? They, the, the <clears throat> wow, you've picked as a last <laughs> question one that then, you know, leads to an hour long lecture. But yep. the fact is you are a member of every clade to which you have, um, once, what? To which you once belonged. To which you once belonged. Yes, you never exit one of the. You know, penguins don't stop being birds because they stopped flying. So let's just let's just do this uh, precisely. Uh, once a meat eater, not always a meat eater, right? Like meat eaters can become fruit eaters, and uh, that doesn't mean that they're still meat eaters at at heart. Like we can actually change functionally, ecologically into something different. You don't retain all of the ecological things all of your ancestors were, or all of the functional things all of your ancestors were. Yeah. But phylogenetically, in terms of your history and our naming of the groups uh, of that history, you know, once an animal, always an animal. Once once a vertebrate always a vertebrate once a tetrapod always a tetrapod even if you go and lose your limbs and become a snake you're still a tetrapod four-legged tetrapod even though you don't have the four legs that are the reason for the name of the thing once a mammal always a mammal even if some mammal evolves it doesn't have mammary glands and so it doesn't have the eponymous trait but it's still a member of the group so dinosaurs 
evolved and out of them emerged birds. So birds are still dinosaurs, even though we don't think of them as such. I do, but um, the, uh, so, uh, so I, contained in that is the example that you need to keep in mind. So what Heather's saying is you've got functional descriptions, like something is warm blooded or carnivorous, and then you've got phylogenetic uh, distinctions. Something is a marsupial uh, or an animal. You never leave a phylogenetic group, right? They are nested sets, completely nested one within another. So for the example of tetrapods, tetrapods sounds like it is a description of a four-legged animal, right? But it is a phylogenetic description of a group that was initially four-legged and in which most of the members still are. They don't have to be, but they are. But snakes are in the tetrapods, even though they have no limbs, because they are historically there. They are not, however, quadrupeds. Quadruped means has four legs. Right, tetrapod well, means a functional distinction, whereas tetrapod is a phylogenetic distinction. There's no way to know that from the words. Right. You have to be clued in and you know have some biology background. But uh, the the historical distinction, you don't leave a historical group that you belong to because that that time has passed. Like you, you're in it, you're in it forever, regardless of whether or not you still look like any of the other members of the group. Right, and so anyway, I wrote a essay years ago uh, on being a fish. And the basic point is, look, you are a fish. In fact, half of fish are tetrapods, right? Um, because the group fish, if fish means something that flops around in the water, then it's not what we all think because then whales are fish, right? Whales are fish by virtue of them being flopping around in the water rather than them having a, an ancestral uh, membership in the group. Um, what else? The whale body has definitely come after you. Yeah, to they, they totally are. Um, whales flop. Yeah. Well, <laughs> all right. Whales, I love you. I didn't mean anything by it. I spoke carelessly. But uh, so in any case, um, birds are dinosaurs every bit as much as a Tyrannosaurus rex is a dinosaur or a Brontosaurus, right? They are full-fledged dinosaurs. And um, isn't it, wouldn't you rather live in a world in which we just simply admit that that's true rather than a world <laughs> in which we pretend that it's somehow not? Um, it's cool. We've got lots of dinosaurs and you can go to the park and feed them if you like. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an awesome fact of being a human on earth even now. All right. I think that's it. I think we did it. I think, I think we did it. Um, yeah, we will be back next week um, in the room that Brett is currently inhabiting. Uh, rather than in this room where I've, I've raised the, the blinds and you can see the forest behind me. So... Um, Actually, this raises an interesting question. Let's suppose that I have caught Omicron, which is not unlikely given that we're in the same house, as of next week. And then I might have to isolate, even though that makes no sense, that the CDC's advice would still say that uh, I have to isolate, even though the people who might be infected have already been infected, potentially. Really, you, you really don't want me to say on air what I'm thinking right now. <laughs> about the CDC. Oh, um, yeah. Um, I hear you. All right. So let's... um... I encourage you. um, I I did explore some of my thoughts, not about the CDC so much, but about some of this um, in in my substack the last couple of weeks. And I may rant a bit um, this upcoming week as well. So I encourage those of you who are looking for that sort of thing to go to naturalselections.substack.com. Um, and all the other places, you know, uh, 
Patreons, find our book. Brett's active on Twitter, raising hell, not getting not getting banned. Um, all 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 the stuff. So, anything else to say? Nope. I think we're there. Okay. Till next week, then. Be good to the ones you love. Eat good food and get outside. Stand up, everyone. See you later.